The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Every morning as we uh, drive in to church on Sunday morning, uh, my three older children and I uh, read a psalm together, and we just talk about it until the road runs out. Uh, if it's a long psalm, we don't get finished, but uh, the next week we go on to the next psalm. We don't worry about ringing it of all of its truth. There's always things that we could learn. But this morning we went back, and, and just because of something I'd noted, I'm, I'm going over the psalms on a daily basis right now, uh, I showed them something that I had never seen before myself in Psalm 1 and 2. I want to share it with you because it really gets us into our study tonight. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, I noted that the kind of theme of Psalm 1 is the blessedness of a life saturated with the Word of God. I really think that would be the right way to look at it. As you meditate day and night on the law of God... Uh, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water and you'll be bearing fruit all the time. The law of the Lord, we talked about that, the kids and I, and I said, what is that? And I think it was Carolyn that said, Ten Commandments, and I said, bigger. And then somebody else said, Law of Moses, I said, bigger. It's the Word of God as a whole. You know, Jesus said, quoting Psalm 82 in John 10, I said, you are gods, he's quoting that, he said, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's. So Jesus said that Psalm 82 is law, and that's good enough for me. The written word of God, feasting on it, meditating on it day and night. I don't think it's an accident that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. This is a way to a blessed life, a happy, rich, fruitful life. Now look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. What's another word for anointed one? The Christ. The Christ. Oh, they're trying to fight against the Christ. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with gladness. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you just take Psalm 1 and 2, there's a, just as a, an entry point into the whole Psalter, into the whole book of Psalms, just these first two Psalms, there's really kind of an alpha and an omega of blessing here, isn't there? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law. And at the end, in Psalm 2, it said, blessed are all who take refuge in him, namely in the Messiah, in the Christ. And I don't think this is an accident. I asked Nathaniel right before I came up, I said, do you think it was an accident? He said, no. Psalm 1, the written word. Psalm 2, the living word, Jesus Christ. This is the key to a blessed life. And I think it's right that the written word comes first because so it was also in God's redemptive history that the written word came first through the prophets testifying to Christ and then Christ came and fulfilled them. Jesus himself, of course, eternal long before any scripture written. But so it is also that we enter into the blessedness of fellowship with Christ by reading the written word. And so we also have, I think, a wonderful point of connection in Exodus 16. The manna kind of pictured or functioning as the written word for us and also the living word, Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to Exodus 16, I'm not going to read through this section. You can do it for yourselves. Uh, we've read through it several times already. But what I want to do tonight is show a point of contact or many points of contact between the manna, the gift of bread from heaven, uh, which sustained that nation of sinners for over 40 years, day after day after day, 40 years, he sustained them in the desert, and Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, the incarnate son of God, who came to earth for our salvation. Now, there is an intimate connection between the written word, the Bible, and the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, isn't there? It seems almost that he can't uh, turn or make a move without fulfilling scripture or quoting it in some way. This is what he did all the time. At every moment, for example, as I cited earlier in John 10, when he's threatened with death, he quotes Psalm 82. Now, how many of you could have done that? Threatened with death, you pull out trusty old Psalm 82. Maybe it wouldn't be one of the first Psalms you would quote. But Jesus was ready because the word of God and the, the written word and the living word were really totally intertwined. In John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus said, You diligently study the scriptures. He's speaking to the Pharisees now. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you th think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Well, what a bold thing to say. For a flesh and blood man to, to say to the Pharisees who, who study the scriptures daily, the scriptures you study, they testify about me. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not the written word alone that gives life. Many study the Bible and never find life. But it's the combination of the written word and faith in the living word, Jesus Christ, that gives life. He said also later in that same chapter, John 5:46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, do you realize how stunning that claim would be? For somebody living so long, 1,500 years after Moses, to say, Moses wrote about me. 
What a claim. Well, how did Moses write about Jesus? Well, I think most of Moses' prophecies were of the typical or picture-type prophecies rather than the verbally uh, uh, predictive prophecies that you get, for example, in Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, etc. These are the verbally predictive prophecies. And I'm not saying they're not verbally predictive prophecies in the five books of Moses. But for the most part, the types were so beautifully set out by Moses. For example, Isaac's sacrifice at the hands of his father Abraham, a type of Christ. So also you get every sacrifice and all the sacrificial system. We get the tabernacle and all of that, as we'll get to, God willing, later in Exodus. A type and a picture of Christ. The priestly ministry, the Levitical priesthood, a type and a picture, a shadow of Christ's priestly ministry, all of these things. But here also the manna. Uh, he wrote about me, Jesus would say, and the manna was about me. Well, all of this is confirmed in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, he goes to the other side of the lake, does another miracle to get there. He walks on the water. And on the other side, uh, the next day, the people come back uh, for more food, really. Now, it's one thing to go back to see another miracle. That's uh, at one level of motive. Um, high or low, you can discern. But uh, Jesus said at one point, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Well, that was one level. But they weren't even there to see a miracle. They were there for another meal. Now, that's reducing Jesus to a loaf of bread, really, at that point. And Jesus said, don't labor for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, manna was, in one sense, the food that spoiled. I mean, really, if they collected too much, it would get maggots in it. That's called spoiling. Don't labor for that food. Get your eyes up off the physical and up into the spiritual realm. That's what he's saying. They wanted another Moses. They said, now that was a good deal, that Moses thing, how day after day they just went out and collected dinner off the ground. Well, that's a good situation, and we would take it. Oh, we promised we wouldn't complain this time as our forefathers did if we had to eat it three times a day for 40 years. We wouldn't complain. Just give us bread from heaven just like Moses did. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God, the bread of heaven is he, it's a person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And so there it is, a very strong and clear point of connection between the miracle of the manna in the Old Testament and the giving of Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about some points, and again in this I'm following A.W. Pink's outline. It's a great book, Gleanings in Exodus, um, and I'm going to just fill in some of the points that he makes. The first point of connection that I want to note is the occasion of giving the manna. After all of the miracles that the Jews had seen, after the parting of the Red Sea, after all of these things, they ran into difficulties in the desert and they began to murmur against the Lord. In verse 2 and 3 of Exodus 16, you can look there, it says, in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Uh, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And so we have here a grave exhibition 
of unbelief and rebellion. Also a clear picture, I think, of human weakness and powerlessness. They could not feed themselves. I mean, there might be enough food to sustain a person or two, or maybe a small little group of people if they knew where to look, but not two million plus people. Uh, they, were, they were absolutely powerless, and God wanted them that way. They were, they were murmuring, they were sinful, and they were powerless. And therefore, I think this is a picture of man's spiritual state into which Christ descended. When Christ came, after thousands of years of common grace blessings, of being fed day after day, and of seeing the works of God in creation, this is where they're at. Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the, immortal, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So into this dark time of unbelief and murmuring and rebellion comes the manna. It comes Jesus Christ. Secondly, note the place where it fell, and that was in the, in the wilderness of sin. Tempting as it is, I'm not going to say anything about the word sin, because it doesn't translate. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. So we'll just have to leave that one aside. Instead, we'll look at the word wilderness. What is a wilderness but a place of barrenness, a place of emptiness, a place of desolation? You would say, in one sense, a God-forsaken place, a place in which there's no fruitfulness, there's no, no growth. Nothing good. And you must think that it's a direct result of man's sin. I can't imagine that there were any deserts before the fall. Now, we could debate the point. But you see in Genesis chapter 3, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, thorns and thistles are especially seen in the desert. Thorns come because of, of a lack of, of moisture. And so a lot of the trees that I saw, for example, in the Rift Valley in Kenya, have these long thorns on them. It's really a, a symbol of, of barrenness, of judgment from God. And so it is again and again in Scripture. The visions of Isaiah use the word desert as a picture of spiritual barrenness. It was a place... Uh, of darkness and rebellion, a place of emptiness, and into that came the manna. So also with Christ. In Genesis 20, verse 11, Abraham said, there is no fear of God in this place. That's when he lied about his wife. Well, that's especially true about the world when Jesus came into it. There's no fear of God in this place. And Jesus came right into that, right into that place of rebellion, into that wilderness. The world really is a wilderness. And so Christ entered the world. There was no room for him. There was no opening for him. It was uh, spiritually dark and resistant. There was no room at the inn, you know, when he was born. And he said, I have no place to lay my head, uh, rejected and despised. This is what it was. I, I found this interesting. I'd never noticed this before, but I just delight in these little details. Jesus said, there's no place uh, for me to lay my head. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But at the end of John's gospel, he found a place at last. In John 19, verse 30, it said, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he, and the Greek says, pillowed his head and gave up his spirit. Isn't that marvelous? That's the, the Greek word. He just laid his head down as on a pillow, and he died. So that's where he finally found a place of rest. But what a desert up until that point. No place of comfort, no place of rest, no fear of God in this place. And into that, the manna came. 
Thirdly, the glory of God is linked with the giving of the manna. This is the first time in Scripture that the glory of God is revealed, where the glory of God is shown and displayed. Now, in the plagues, God says to Moses, I will gain glory for myself when uh, I pour out my, my judgments on Pharaoh and on Egypt. But here, the glory is actually displayed. If you look at... Um, Verse 10, it says, uh, this is in Exodus 16:10. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. So that's the first time that that glory cloud, that glory uh, is said in Scripture to be displayed. The glory of the Lord appeared, and then the manna came. So also uh, we see in Christ, the giving of Christ, a display of the glory of God. Now, I've thought a lot about glory. Uh, I really have. It's a difficult expression. In one sense, glory is something you can read by at night. I mean, literally. Uh, you know, the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory shone around them and they were terrified. Of course, you wouldn't be reading. You'd be on the ground terrified with the other shepherds. But there's a, a, a visible physical light such that you don't need the sun or the moon or the stars or any lamp anymore in the, in the New Jerusalem. So there's a physical light that's associated with glory. But Jesus' glory when he entered the world was a different kind of glory, wasn't it? It was the glory of the mind and a glory of faith in which you can see in him, if you have faith, all of the attributes of God. There's a display of the attributes of God, and that's how we also glorify God in this world. You are the light of the world, he, he calls us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we put on display his compassion, his mercy, his long-suffering, his, uh, his kindness and goodness, uh, all of those beautiful attributes. Jesus did it perfectly. And so it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Also in John 1.14, it said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the glory of God associated with the giving of the manna. And then the highest and best glory of all, the glory that saves you. The glory that saves you, that turns you from a darkened dead sinner into a saved person. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, that's the light that saves you. It turned you from darkness into light when you saw at last the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God associated with the giving of the manna. Fourth, the manna came down from heaven. It came down from heaven. It descended and landed like dew or on the dew of the ground. The bread of God that came down from heaven. In Exodus 16:4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The physical manna came down from above. It descended to the earth. It was not of human origin. You couldn't explain it. It came from heaven. And so also Jesus came down from heaven to earth. And he says this again and again, doesn't he? It was very offensive, I think, to the Jews of his time. But actually, uh, he says it to Nicodemus first in John 3.13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, even the Son of Man. What do you think Nicodemus thought when he heard that? But no one's ever gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And then in John 6.33, which we already read, the bread of God is he, the person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And again and again in John's gospel, Jesus descended from heaven to the earth. He is the bread from heaven. And so he said also to Pilate, 
that for this reason he came into the world to testify to the truth. He is the bread from heaven. Fifth, the manna was a free gift from God. You didn't have to pay for it. It says in Isaiah 50, 55, sorry, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, let all who is thirsty come, buy and eat without money and without cost. You sit down at the banquet and you feast and the Lord pays the tab. The Lord pays for it. And so also here the manna. I mean, if you just could calculate the amount of money it would take to feed two million people three times a day for 40 years. Now, that was expensive. But God gave it freely as a gift. The manna was a gift from God. And so also, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the gift of God. And we know from Paul's writings in Ephesians 2, he says, the, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He just gives us the manna freely. Uh, what could you use of your possessions, if they really were yours, after all, because what do you have that you didn't receive? But what could you gather together of your possessions that would induce God to send his son for you as the bread of life? Do you have enough money? Do you have enough resources that would sway him if you were not disposed to give his son? Absolutely not. There's nothing in our paltry little possessions that would make him do that. It had to be free, and it was. The manna was a free gift from God. The manna was also sent to God's people, sent to the Israelites. Uh, he didn't send manna to the Egyptians. He didn't send it to the Ammonites. He didn't send it to anybody but to the Jews. And so also Jesus came into the world for his people. It says in John 17, for their sake, namely his sheep, for their sake I sanctify myself. Jesus came to minister to them, to call them, to feed them, to give them everything. The manna was sent to the Israelites. The manna also came right down to where the Israelites were. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, could they have ascended up to heaven to get the manna? No, it would have been impossible. Could they have gone anywhere? No, it was impossible. Look with me. Put your finger in Exodus 16. Look over at Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Romans 10, verse 5 and following. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes, that is by faith, says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, and that is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, every, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, at the beginning of that little section, the word of faith does not say, what do I have to do to climb up into heaven and get Christ down from there so that he'll come into the earth? You can't do it. That's the whole point that Paul's making. He's quoting Deuteronomy, but he says, uh, that is to bring Christ down. Can you ascend into heaven? No. And so the word must come near you, very near you, right near you. And so it is in 
Romans 10. It is in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we are professing. Just confessing faith in Christ. The word, therefore, manna comes right to where you are to save you. I think that's incredibly encouraging. The manna also next must be gathered by each individual. Now, in this way, it's one sense different because, you know, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little. All right, and so there was a dis distributing and a, and a giving around. But in Jesus' case, you must believe for yourself. And in the end, each individual Israelite had to eat the manna for him or herself, or it would do them no good. To know that the manna was right by you and you never consumed it, it wouldn't nourish you in any way, shape, or form. And so the manna must be gathered by faith. In John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You have to receive Christ. You have to take him into yourself by faith uh, or else you cannot go to heaven. You can't go to heaven on somebody else's faith, not by proxy. You have to uh, attain and believe in Christ yourself. You must personally receive him. Next, the manna met a daily need. We sing this hymn, and rightly so, I need thee every hour. How much do you need Christ? Do you feed on him just once? Is that sufficient? Or do you not need him every moment? Do you not feed on him at every moment? You have no prayer life apart from Christ. Do you realize that? God won't hear you except through Christ. He is our access into the presence of the Father. You have no physical life except that Christ holds you together. You feed on him at every moment and you have no spiritual life. When Christ who is your life appears, it says in Colossians, then you also appear with him in glory. And so he meets a daily is too, too wide a range. He meets a moment by moment need. He sustains your spiritual life moment by moment. And so you're going to feed on him at every moment. Next, the appetite uh, determined how much you gathered. The hungrier you, you were, the more you gathered. How much of Christ is enough for you? How much of Christ is enough? Think about that. Now I'm going to shift the image a little bit as John does in John 7. Jesus said on the last and greatest day of the feast, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. How thirsty are you? Have you had enough of Christ today? Well, that's a convicting question, isn't it? I thought about that today as I had a little time to relax and to rest. Uh, did I rest in Christ? Did I rest through prayer and through the taking in of the word or through something else? I've had enough of Christ, now I'll go to something else. And so the appetite, I think, determines how much you gather. The manna also is despised by those who are not God's people. We talked about this about the physical manna, so it's true also of Christ. You know, the mixed multitude said, we're sick of the manna. Can't stand it. Tired of it. And so also Christ was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He came into the world and the world did not receive him. And so also Christ was despised. The manna was white in color. Uh, this represents Christ's purity, his perfection. He committed no sin, nor is any deceit in his mouth. When we had our little prayer time here a moment ago, I was just moved to think again of how much temptation Christ faced for us. Think about it. I mean, he felt every temptation fully and didn't yield. And I've said before, I'll say again, Christ the most tempted man in history. And he never once yielded. He was pure. He was perfect. He, he could say to his enemies, his bitter enemies, which of you is able to convict me of sin? And none of them could. He was pure. He was perfect. And then finally, the manna was preserved on the Sabbath. I think this is interesting. You know, the 
the manna was preserved before the Lord and also on the Sabbath, meaning it didn't get maggots in it. It was preserved in two senses. One, uh, when they collected twice as much on the Sabbath, uh, they, they didn't have to go out the next day and were commanded not to. And so there were no maggots in it. There was no corruption that day. And neither was there any corruption in the manna that was kept up before the Lord in the tabernacle. That endured uh, for generations without corruption. And so it says uh, in Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You will not let him see corruption. Jesus never saw physical corruption in the grave, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. Now, in the end, Christ is our manna. He is our bread. He said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life in you. Now, it's a hard saying, of course, and I don't think we'll ever fully understand it, but you must moment by moment feed on Christ. And I think there's an intimate connection between Christ and the written word, as I said earlier. Go to the scriptures and find Christ there. I was talking to Bob Hatcher, and he said, I think like your number one ministry is to get us to see Christ in the Old Testament. And Bob, I wouldn't shirk it. I would say, yeah, that's at least one of them. I want you to find Christ in Psalm 1, and I want you to find Christ in Psalm 2. I want you to find him because he is your life. Christ is your life. And so as you scour the scriptures, find the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he will give you nourishment and sustenance. And in the end, he's going to save your soul. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.